This morning we are beginning a series titled Life at the Boiling Point. In this series we're going to be talking about practices that we can incorporate into our life to raise our spiritual temperature. So as you may remember, when water is heated to 212 degrees Fahrenheit, 100 degrees Celsius, if you are so inclined, it goes through a phase change. It changes from liquid to gas. Likewise, God wants to raise our spiritual temperature so that we see a change in our life and a change in our world. But God changes us over time by something called practices. Some people call them disciplines. Sometimes you hear somebody call them spiritual disciplines. These practices are habits that are similar to heating elements that move us closer to 212, that shape our character over a long period of time. And these practices include prayer, worship, community, serving, giving, developing a life of gratitude, and hospitality. And we're going to talk about those. But these raise the heat by raising our perspective, showing us that there is something better than the status quo. But I just talked about seven practices, but I don't want to give you the impression that these are seven steps. Just do these seven steps and you'll be a remarkably different person by next Tuesday. Evangelical and Protestant Christianity in the United States acts as if life change happens like it's the internet. I tried these seven easy disciplines and you won't believe what happened next. They make it sound easy. I believe that change is possible, but I don't think that change is easy. It takes time. It takes effort, it takes failure, it takes frustration, it takes forgiveness. And it takes God's grace working in the disciplines. But it's incredibly different than boiling water. It's not like you can just turn the dial and all of a sudden be who God wants you to be. It takes time. And there's a large field of study dedicated to understanding how humans change or why they won't. So there's a lot to be said. But for my benefit, and I hope for yours, let me simplify it before we get into the text. That I think that there has to be three things. Three things that have to work together for change to happen. Number one is that there has to be personal assessment. You have to take inventory of your own life. Number two, there has to be discontentment. So what if you know something's wrong? You might like it being wrong. And three, action. And life change does not happen with just one or two of those. All three must work together. So if you want change, you need personal assessment. You need to be able to reflect upon the state of affairs in your own life, to become thoughtful, self-aware, to understand that you haven't arrived yet and that Amazon is sending you your new shiny halo, that you have a ways to go. Second, discontentment. You need discontentment. Once you have a sense that something in your life needs to change, whatever that happens to be, you have to get fed up with it. There has to come a point where you say, okay, no more, I really want to change. You have to begin to hate the status quo. Then there's action. You've got to take action. 
It's not enough to know that something wrong is going on or that you want to change. There has to be an action plan. And usually, it is cultivating practices, habits in your life, not just doing religious stuff, but disciplines, cultivating them that shape your character over the arc of your life. God works through effort. He works through your effort. And if you want to change, if you want to change, it's not enough to be passive, to kind of squeeze your hands really hard and close your eyes and say, God, raise my spiritual temperature now. It doesn't happen like that. You can't do that and expect transformation. God works through effort. Character change does not happen by dumb luck. It takes effort, discontentment, and action. So in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about those individual uh, disciplines that I just mentioned. But today, we're actually just going to talk about this process. This process. And we're going to look in Revelation chapter 3. So let's talk about assessment first. So our passage is taken from Revelation, the book of Revelation, which is a letter written to seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century. Chapter 2 and 3 are individualized letters written to each of those churches, and this section is addressed to Christians living in the city of Laodicea. The city of Laodicea was a commercial powerhouse, and it was filled with many wealthy people. It was so rich that in the year 60, an earthquake devastated the region and that city, and they had accumulated so much wealth that they turned down the Roman government and said, oh, we'll just rebuild it ourselves. No thanks. Like, that's incredible. Not only that, but they had a well-respected medical school. They had developed a, a cure for a common illness that afflicted people at that time that if it was left unattended, the person went blind. So they're smart at business. They're smart at medicine. But for all of that, do you know what the history books Remember most about Laodicea? That they had horrible drinking water. Had horrible drinking water. I'm like, they're going around bragging about, hey, we give sight to the blind. And they're like, yeah, but your water stinks. So Laodicea was part of a tri-city area. So there was Laodicea, Colossae. So the book of Colossians was written to that group. And then Hierapolis. So it was about 10 miles from, from both of those cities. So Hierapolis had these wonderful hot springs that were teeming with minerals so people could go there with ailments, get in the hot springs, and find relief. Colossae had all of its water provided by snow and water runoff from a nearby mountain. So before filtration and refrigeration, it didn't get any better than the water from there. But Laodicea's water was so horrible that they decided to do this massive civil, civil engineering project in which they piped water from hot springs five miles away. And by the time the water reached the city, it was lukewarm and still had horrible taste. So Hierapolis's water stayed hot and it healed people. Colossae's water stayed cold and it refreshed people. Laodicea's water did nothing. Nothing. It didn't even quench thirst. So Jesus here says, I wish that you were hot or cold. Now in this series, I'm using this analogy of a boiling point, and I'm going to say, do not grow cold. But Jesus is not using 
that word or that concept in that way in this passage. He's not saying, I wish that you were hot, like you were a passionate Christian or a cold one. He's not saying that. He's saying, I wish that you were hot or cold. If you were cold like Colossae, you would actually be refreshing to people. And if you were hot like Heropolis, at least you could help the hurting. But you're neither. You're neither. You don't do any good. God's grace comes to them and wants to work through them. God wants them to be an instrument for good in the world. But they're tepid, they're lukewarm, they're room temperature. They are of no discernible value. And that kind of faith will never change the world because it doesn't even change the Christian. And that kind of faith leaves a bad taste in everybody's mouth. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. They have no self-awareness. They can't even take a personal assessment. They think everything is fine. Verse 17. For you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Their self-assessment. Like they're, they're just completely blind to the true situation of their life. They think everything is okay. Jesus says your assessment is wrong. You think that because of your outward circumstances are okay, that inwardly you're okay. That's not the case. You think that because your bank account is full, that your life is full. You have this incredible medicine that makes people see, but you're blind to your own situation. You have these comforts of luxury, new clothes, but spiritually speaking, your clothes are trashed. They need eyes to see the situation. They need a better assessment. And occasionally you might ask, you know, in our liturgy on Sunday morning, why do we always have to talk about sin? I mean, what good is confession anyway? What good? I mean, why do we have to say these prayers together? What good are they? Confession is self-assessment. Confession is self-assessment. It's becoming conscious of the fact that you've not arrived, that you're on a journey, and then there's a lot more road to travel, that your temperature needs to increase. Confession elevates your perspective. It moves us from thinking about the immediate and often trivial things in life, and it moves us to thinking about what kind of person God wants us to become with the help of His grace. Confession, and then the assurance of God's love toward us are the ointment that God puts on us to help us see, to take a true assessment of ourselves and to assess God rightly too. It's the medicine that fights against blindness, presumption, arrogance. Confession and assurance is the ointment that God gives us so that we can truly see the situation. Look, if you don't cultivate a habit of prayer and confession, then the words of Jesus to Laodicea are the words to us. You think everything's okay, but it's worse than you can even imagine. And it's only when God meets us in that time of confession and assurance that he could actually make us of some discernible good to those around us. So assessment, we need assessment. We need God's help helping us giving us eyes to see the situation. But then there's also discontentment 
It's not enough to know that something's wrong. You have to desire. You have to have a desire to move forward. So look, if you want to change, then you have to see the gap between where you are now and where God wants you to be. You have to be persuaded that there's much more to life with God than what you've experienced or what you're currently experiencing. It's kind of like a holy discontentment that God needs to work in your life. And there's multiple ways that God does this. And it's reproving and discipline or rebuke and discipline. Verse 19. Uh, verse, uh, let's start in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So Jesus is calling out the gap between where they are and what he can provide for them. And then look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So look, I realize that there's a distance between our culture and this culture 2,000 years ago. And we can hear the words reprove or rebuke and discipline and automatically think of overly aggressive physical discipline. We can think of an abusive parent or a master physically assaulting a slave. I get it. But if you find yourself closed to the word discipline, I want you to just open yourself up for just a few minutes and kind of temper that. Just be open for a little bit. What are the first three words of verse 18? I counsel you. Counsel. It's not a magic word. I mean, it's, it's how we use it. The Greek word is, it simply means to develop a plan. To advise. To develop a plan. So Jesus is talking about giving them medicine to restore their sight. So there's a medical plan in place that brings about a desired change. Health. Wholeness, the ability to see the situation. You take this medicine, you take the medicine, you stick to the game plan, the regimen, and the illness goes away, and you get your sight. That's not a bad trade-off. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I'm revealing the gap. This is the true situation. This is what I can offer you to bridge that gap. But I'm going to develop an action plan for you to move you from here to there. And he's wooing them away from the status quo. So he develops, he changes our character by developing a plan for us and then lovingly correcting us when we move off the plan. So a rebuke or to reprove someone is when they bring compelling evidence that you're in the wrong, right? No one really enjoys that. Discipline is training. It can, it can involve physical punishment, but it very often simply means verbal instruction, someone teaching, someone talking. God brings about our attention. He, gives, he helps us pay attention to the truth of our situation by simply talking to us. Discipline. Did you know that the ordinary, the ordinary teaching on Sunday morning that I am doing right now is considered discipline? I am currently disciplining you. Now, I hope that you would say it's not abusive, all right? I really hope that. I really hope that. And it's not overly aggressive. But teaching, opening up the Bible and learning, that's discipline. Sometimes it's a slight nudge. Sometimes it's a big nudge. Sometimes it's a shove. But look, that's what God does to us all the time. He gives us the truth. He talks to us about our situation and about himself. He shows us when we're off track, and then he provides ways to get us back on track. 
So let me talk just briefly about this idea of discipline. I think that some people view God like, like this. God thought I was stupid in this area, so he just unleashed calamity upon me so that I would get smarter. But I don't think that God looks at you and says, I need to wisen you up, boy. So I'm going to hurt you. I do think that God is gracious and even uses the worst of circumstances to instruct us, to discipline us in that way, to give us wisdom, to teach us the mysteries of life, that he's gracious, that he does show us our fault if there is a fault to be had. But God teaches us. If God did not teach us the difference between truth and lie, good or evil, hate and love, or the difference between radical inclusion and racial bigotry, then it would be laughable to think that God loves us or even loves our world. He teaches us. He disciplines us by talking with us. So if you want self-assessment, if you want the ability to see yourself as you are, and if you want discontentment, that is, if you want to develop a desire to change, then you have to develop the ability to hear the truth. It's a severe mercy. It is a severe mercy. It is a fierce grace. It is medicine that hurts when you take it, but it makes you better. And if you want the ability to gain wisdom, to be fully formed and a dedicated follower of Jesus, then you need to explore ways to open yourself up to seeing the gap between where you are and where you would like to be. And Jesus meets you in that gap. And that's what I want to end our time together talking about today. Because that's also another way, not just by rebuke, not just by discipline, but by redemptive presence. Redemptive presence. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He changes us by redemptive presence. God's teaching is always restorative. It's always to bring you back, to restore to you what was lost. And it's always redemptive. It's never shaming. It is never shaming. In the discussion this morning about Pilgrim's Progress, we talked about how God uses failure in our life. And oftentimes we can go through a situation and we can think, well, that happened because I'm an awful person. But maybe it just happens because you're a person. And that people aren't perfect. And God's word to you should always, it should never be shaming. It should always be redemptive and restorative. I stand at the door and knock. Don't you want to, so this is a letter written to a church, right? Don't you want to like go to the next business meeting at Laodicea and say, so exactly when did we vote Jesus out of the church? Why is he out there? You ever wonder that? Many of your lives 
have been changed by redemptive presence. Someone built a relationship with you and invested in that relationship with you. Someone mentored you, just hung around you, talked with you, listened, asked questions. Someone with more knowledge, someone with more experience than you, they shared it with you. That's redemptive, transformational presence. We give it an uncool name like mentoring. <laughs> but it's redemptive presence. It's faithful presence. Here's the truth. Laodicea was at the temperature of the world around them. They were room temperature Christians. If you want to change, if you want to be transformed, if you want to reach 212, then you need to spend time with a source that's hotter than you. And that's Jesus. But Laodicea isn't getting warmer because Jesus is on the outside, not close to them. So no wonder they are no discernible good in their world. So look, here we have the invitation of Christ to invite Christ deep into our life so that he can make us more like him, so that he can raise our temperature. Perhaps you've seen the painting inspired by this verse by William Holloman Hunt. I stand at the door and knock. How many of you have seen that? Yes? No? Okay. Jesus is holding a lantern and it's kind of dark and the sun is set and it's a really dark doorway so he has a lantern and at the base of the doorway there's thorns and shrubs which kind of gives the indication that Jesus has not been there in a while if ever right but there's something very subtle in that painting there's no doorknob on Jesus' side of the door. Now, the artist's point is clear. The door can only be opened from the inside. Now, you and I wonder why anyone would design a door like that. I get it. Someone would always have to be home. I get it, right? But his point is clear. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to live your life in the presence of God to welcome God into your life and to speak with you, to abide with you, to use what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. And that's what these disciplines do. That's what prayer, gratitude, giving, serving, hospitality, that's what they do. They give space in your life for God to enter and to teach you. And sometimes the teaching is, keep going, good job. And at other times, it's, no, 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 remember, we're aiming for gratitude, so you can't be jealous. You're going for gratitude, not jealous, so get the brain out of the box, put it back in your head. If you are jealous, it's going to strip out all the joy in your life. And that's reproving, that's discipline. Remember, this is where we're going, this is the action plan, this is who you are becoming. So don't be doing this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but God is a relational God. He stands at the door like a friend, knocking, wanting to come in and deepen the relationship. And Jesus Christ himself is proof that God is relational. He took on flesh, he moved into the neighborhood, and he started making friends. He is a relational God. 
And one of the most scandalous aspects of Jesus' life is that he entered homes of and ate with those who were considered outsiders by the religious insiders. It's amazing. It's the religious insiders in the Gospels and in Laodicea that kick Jesus out. But Jesus, the true insider, becomes the outsider. Jesus sat at the table with them. He discussed their life. He discussed his life. And it changed them deeply, profoundly, transformed them. It's redemptive presence. In the Gospel of John, there's this woman who goes out to get water. It's just an ordinary day for her. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm thirsty. Could you help me out? So they have this conversation. And it ends up transforming her. So eventually she says, well, who do you think you are talking to me? And Jesus says, well, really, I'm, the reason that I'm talking with you is because I know everything there is to know about you. And here's proof. And she's like, tell me more. And he's like, all right, well, I know that this is going on in your life. And by asking this question, God, who are you? She has to answer the question, who am I that God would know me, everything there is to know about me, and want to be in a relationship with me? God is that kind of relational God. What these spiritual disciplines are, it's really saying, God, this is, you are a giving God. You are a serving God. You are a God that gives abundantly. So help me become like you by being a hospitable person, a person who is gracious, a person who welcomes other people, a person who serves. And communing with Jesus, this woman, she began to have a true assessment of herself. I need more of Jesus into my life. He knows everything there is to know about me. But then it was a true assessment of God. God is gracious, forgiving, and not shaming, but always welcoming into his presence. Look, it was those who didn't think that they needed a relationship with Jesus that ended up kicking Jesus out of the church and removing the doorknob. He stands at the door today and he's knocking. And I wonder if you might think that it's, it's a really good time to to get up and answer the door. That for a long time, you've been wanting to grow in your relationship with God. And so you do the seasonal thing while it, in Lent. Lent comes and goes at Easter. Okay, when school's out. When school starts. Oh, at Advent, I'll start. He's knocking. He's knocking. And the invitation is to let him in and to let him warm you with his presence. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Just simply pray, show me the gaps. Show me where you meet me in the gaps and begin to transform me and transform my desires. Take up Christ's invitation today. Amen. Let's pray. God, it's really hard to do a self-assessment. It's really hard to get a sense of where we are. Uh, we're always fluctuating. Um, today we could truly desire it, and then Tuesday morning we could have a, 
a very different desire. So I pray that you would begin to work in us, that you would begin to warm us with these words from this passage, that you would give us the ointment of confession and assurance of your grace on our eyes so that we could see our need and your provision, especially the provision of your son, Jesus Christ, given for us, not to simply forgive us for sin, though we do need that, but to transform us, to warm us, to move us from where you found us to where you want us to be. So God, we pray that this would be a season of change in our life, in our church, in our world. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.